Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Napoleon Assist. It's day six of Waterloo Remembered and I've got something pretty special lined up for you today because I'm talking to the archaeologist Stuart Eve and Armed Forces veteran Ben Mead who are both part of the brilliant archaeological initiative Waterloo Uncovered. Gents, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. How are you both? Surviving, not bad. I'm pretty doing okay actually with this lockdown. Fantastic. Stuart, First of all, tell us a little bit about the Waterloo Uncovered programme. What does it actually aim to do? Well, so Waterloo Uncovered was, um, was a charity. It was founded in 2015, which obviously was the bicentenary of the, uh, of the battle. And it was founded by a couple of Coldstream guards, um, a guy called Mark Evans and a guy called Charlie Foynette. So Mark and Charlie were both serving uh, in Afghanistan and um, Mark had a had a really horrible time out there basically, um, had an awful time. In fact, he wrote a book about it. Um, and then on his return, um, he was eventually diagnosed with PTSD. Um, so he retired out of the army, but, and he was sort of tried a, a lot of things to try and get through it. Um, but eventually he was sent on an archeological dig um, with, a, with an organization called Operation Nightingale, which was a program set up by the Ministry of Defense which basically used the extremely rich archaeological landscapes of, uh, of the military land like Salisbury Plain and some of the other bases as well around the world that they have. So <clears throat> military bases are, are good in a way because, you know, people don't do very much development on them. And uh, so it, it preserves a lot of archaeology. <laughs> so for archaeologists, military stuff is actually quite good often. Um, so they use this basically as, as, a, as a way... Um, as a therapeutic way to help people through PTSD or other injuries, basically. So that really, really helped Mark um, as he was going through. And then in 2015, Charlie was tasked by the Coldstream Guards to organize some event to celebrate the, uh, the or to remember the battle, which, as you probably know, is quite a big battle honor for the, um, for the Coldstream Guards. 
And he was just going to do your normal kind of battlefield tour. But then he spoke to Mark and they sort of cooked up this crazy idea that why don't we go and excavate the battlefield instead and do a sort of Operation Nightingale type thing out there. Um, <clears throat> they'd both done archaeology at, at university as undergrads. So they decided they'd try and organise that kind of thing and um, they phoned a few people and here we are, basically. So it, it's... Um, in terms of aims, there's, I guess there's four aims. So the first one would be to undertake professional archaeology at the battlefield of Waterloo, hopefully to help better understand the battle, um, to support as many veterans and also serving personnel as possible. Um, uh, there's a big educational aim as well, obviously. We, there's no point in us digging this up if we're not going to tell people about it. And then also to make sure that the work is is both uh, international, but also multinational in terms of the, the team as well. Um, so, you know, on, on the dig, we have, we have veterans and serving personnel from all of the nations that were, were part of the battle, which is really, really important. Uh, and it's, it's also important to note that it's not just a two week excavation in the summer. It's a, it's a 12 month program, basically. So, and that supports the veterans in a number of different ways, you know, physical and mental recovery, um, their general health and well-being, obviously providing new, new education as well, learning new skills, hopefully going on to some form of employment or vocation. And we have had a few of the veterans who've gone on and done degrees in archaeology since being part of the project. And then importantly, the transition into civilian life as well. Um, which is you know, a big a big issue, and I'm sure we'll we'll get into that a bit a bit later. Uh, and finally, just while I'm doing the doing the bit about it, it's a it's a um, it's a partnership between professional archaeologists, so a company called LP Archaeology, which I helped to run, which is part of my involvement. Um, University of Glasgow, the University of Ghent in Belgium, University of Utrecht, who deal with a lot of the Dutch education. Uh, and then also uh, an organisation called AWAP, which is the Belgian uh, local archaeologists. Um, and they've been absolutely fantastic and they come along and help help uh, co-direct and um, basically give us permission to dig, which is extremely useful and, and also help us out on the ground too. It is a fantastic initiative and I know being a charity, you all work very hard to keep your patrons and the wider public informed about what you're doing. How can people find out more? And crucially, how can they sort of get involved and donate? Well, thank you for asking. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> uh, so the best place to go is the website, which is www.waterlooncovered.com. Um, www um, <clears throat> if you go on there, there's all sorts of information. There's all of the information from the digs, but there's also, you know, a whole host of documents about the project and, um, and what we do. And crucially, there is a donate page. So if anyone wants to... Uh, fancies going on and, and clicking on the donate please do because as you know at the moment charities are are struggling a little bit and especially as we're not allowed to go out and dig in the summer this year you know it's really important that we can uh, that we can keep the money coming in so um yes thank you very much waterlooncovered.com that's where you need to be you definitely need to people need to go and have a look and and if they have got the money I, it's a fantastic cause i really urge people to donate Stuart. What drew you specifically to the archaeology of Waterloo? Um, 
Well, I've been, uh, <coughs> I've been an archaeologist now for nearly 20 years. Um, and I've basically been running a, a professional archaeology company since then. I'm also now a, an academic archaeologist at, at Bournemouth University as well. Um, and I think <laughs> in terms of Waterloo, what happened was I actually was at university with Mark and Charlie. And um, when they came up with the idea, I have a feeling what they did was go through their little black book of people who were still working in archaeology that they knew and then gave me a call and said, what are you doing? And, and I said, oh, I don't know, you know I'm just working. Uh, and, so, um, and so basically that's how I got involved in the project. But in terms of Waterloo itself, one of the reasons that I was so enthusiastic about it was because when I, um, when I was growing up, my dad and I used to play a computer game called Waterloo, something rather by, I think it was Microprose or something. I don't know, it was one of those really old old games on a Spectrum or a Mega or something. And we never, ever managed to get Napoleon to win on this game. It was really, really difficult. <laughs> no matter how hard we tried, Napoleon could never win. So, so in this game, we, we, you know, we went deep into the history of it and everything. And so I think probably from then on, that was always something that was just in the back of my mind from playing that computer game, which seems crazy. But um, so when so when Mark phoned up and said, "Would you like to be involved?" It was a it was a no brainer, basically. Absolutely, yes, please, brilliant. Um, what periods of military history were you drawn to growing up, and and what was it um, that kind of drew you to Waterloo Uncovered? Um, well, I was growing up, my father was in the military for a while. Um, I suppose being an eighties baby. You're pretty much drawn to World War Two because it was still quite raw, um, especially the Battle of Arnhem. Cause I've got a great family connection with it. But as I grew older and started reading, and then more so into history, um, at the same time, the wonderful character Sharp appeared on our TV screens, and um, and that really got my interest more so in that period of time, and also in the American Revolution. And I've never read really, about. I've always done the readings behind the scenes, even when I was serving in the army. I, if I was going on deployment, say through well, Kosovo or Afghanistan, I would take time out and read up on the local history and the military involvements over the centuries. So it gave me an insight and an understanding of what's been going on and to see where the people have come to. And it's just really gone from there, really. Was that something that the army encouraged you to do, to kind of understand the, the armed forces' role within? No, not really. They like you to, but they don't encourage you to do it. Because at the end of the day, you're just a, I know it's awful to say, you're boots on the ground and you're just a figure. But because coming from a semi-decent background with education, and um, reading has always been at the top of my list. You know, the guys who go downtown in Germany and get drunk, nine times out of 10, I would sit indoors, read a book, you know, go out traveling, look at sites, you know, I've been lucky enough to be posted around in the world, Gibraltar especially, history there is amazing. So I was out and about 24-7 just looking at things. And was archaeology something that particularly had interested you before you were involved with Waterloo Uncovered? Yeah, um, the time team. <laughs> when it was um, aired on TV, it was really popular in the army. And I can remember sitting in the mess on a Sunday night, you know, having drinks and smoking ourselves silly. And it was like the talk of the town. You know, everyone was in there to watch the time team. And, and I suppose 
it was just a general interest, but it's always been an interest of mine anyway, because I live in East Sussex and history's everywhere around me. I can literally go out my front door and within two miles, I know William the Conqueror landed. So, yeah. And a member of the time team presenting staff is involved with the dig, aren't they? Yeah, so we have, <laughs> we have uh, Phil Harding, um, <laughs> who, if you've seen Time Team, is, is the one with the West Country accent and the terrible hat. Uh, and yes, he's, he's, he's come out for the last few years, which has been fantastic, actually. And, it, and, and it's interesting, Ben, what you were saying about the, the Time Team and, and the Army, because I think he's a real hit with, with oh, God, yeah. you know, the people there. And... Um, and you know he's obviously he's a professional broadcaster as well as a completely amazing archaeologist. And actually, what was nice was was um, you know obviously I grew up with Time Team as well. And then being able to go along and dig with with Phil Harding and realise that actually he is really 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 good. <laughs> it's not just TV. He's actually an incredible archaeologist, and that's just fantastic to to um, to be part of. Um, and and he's he's. You know he brings he brings a lot to the to the dig as well um he's the chair or was the chair of what's known as the defense archaeology group which was a a loose group of people who were coming together to to look at archaeology um on of military areas but also to do with this kind of veteran involvement as well so um so no he's fantastic and great fun and talk us through a bit of what waterloo uncovered has well un uncovered if you see what i mean so for the first, we've obviously been digging since 2015 um, and it started very small and is now really, really big. Um, uh, so we've basically, for the first part, have been concentrating uh, at Hougamont. So um, one of the reasons for that was because, of course, Mark and Charlie were both Coldstream guards and uh, they were desperate to um, prove how amazing the Coldstream Guards were at the defence of the North Gate of Hougamont. So, um, so we started at the North Gate of Hougamont, basically, <laughs> um, which, has been, which has been fantastic. And for, for anyone who's been there now, there's a lovely little museum. Um, and it's a, really, it's a really great, great spot there. Um, so, well, there's a few, there's a few parts of Hougamont that we were looking at. Um, one of the main ones is the, is the courtyard. Um, so I'm sure most of your listeners will know that um, there was a big fight by the North Gate uh, and eventually the, the, there was a small incursion and then the French were pushed back through the North Gate, which was heroically closed by the, um, by the Coldstream Guards. And currently most of the buildings of Hougamon are there. A few of them burnt down during the battle. Um, <clears throat> but there's a one big one missing, which is a big barn, which is quite close to the North Gate. And so we wanted to have a look and see if we could find any, any remains from that, basically. There's a lot of engravings, there's a lot of maps and, and pictures which show what it looked like, but not all of them match up, basically. So we really wanted to just kind of um, check out and see whether or not, you know, it, what it looked like essentially and what even what size it was that was the other thing is the, the maps show it all at different sizes so so a lot of our work in the courtyard has been trying to uncover the, this big barn and we have a, we have eventually uncovered it and um, the foundations of it at least and it the excavations have shown that the barn is actually much bigger than 
was originally thought. I mean, much bigger. It's about a meter, meter wider, um, <clears throat> which doesn't sound particularly interesting, except when you think about the North Gate and the French coming in through the North Gate. Essentially, with a much bigger barn, it means that there was a much smaller space for them to go through. So they're way more contained than they might have been to start with which obviously makes it much easier to defend as well. Um, so that's quite interesting about just thinking about uncovering that building and then trying to visualize that actual fight as it happened and, and you know the small, very small corridor that they had to go through in order to break out into the courtyard. Um, and then that barn itself was burnt during the battle. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of accounts of that. And of course, we're digging out the foundations of it, um, and most of it was cleared out after the battle. But as you go down, down, and down, and down, eventually you get to the battle layer, so you're finding burnt bricks and everything. And then, of course, underneath, in a very time team moment, <laughs> underneath the burnt bricks, we pull up a couple of them, and um, and there's a there's a cold stream guard button along with some bits of. Coldstream Guard um, epaulets as well, and a bit of uniform. I mean, you couldn't make it up really, and, and you can imagine what it was like for the Coldstreamers there when they, you know, this is 200 years ago, their battle honor, and you're, you are actually showing the remains of these uniforms which have been, I mean, there wasn't any bodies in there um, yet, uh, but certainly, you know, the uniforms and the buttons and all of that kind of thing. So. Um, so that's a very poignant moment, but also a very, very um, exciting moment for us. Um, and then sticking with, with Hugemon again, there's an area along the wall on the, um, on the south side. Uh, so there's a big walled garden and then there's a hedge. And in between the hedge and the walled garden, there's an area which we've called the killing zone or it's known as the, the killing zone. Um, because basically the French were coming up from the south through a woodland. I'm sorry, it's very difficult to, to um, talk about it without a map, but um, maybe you see some maps on our website. <laughs> so effectively the French are attacking Hougamon, coming up through a woodland which no longer exists, and then they have to fight through a hedge, and then there's a, there's a very small area, a few metres wide, that they have to run across in order to scale the wall of, of Hougamon. Um, so we went over there with, with some metal detectors to, to try and see if we could find any remains. Um, and there was a, just a few musket balls and that was it. And we know that this was an area of really incredible fighting, intense fighting. Um, so we were a bit disappointed, to be honest, <laughs> because there was only just a couple of, couple of remains. Uh, and this is an important point, actually. It seems that a lot of those musket balls that should have been there have probably been illegally metal detected in the past so the battlefield is a is a protected area by law in Belgium um, but obviously people still go along with their metal detectors and, and pull up artifacts and everything and you know as they do in the UK as well so so that has cost a lot of the archaeological record there I think um, but luckily for us we found out that if we just used a big machine and pulled back a lot of the turf on top and started excavating in spits there, we could find a lot more musket balls. And suddenly if you pull the, pull the surface off, you know, there's hundreds of musket balls in that area. Um, <clears throat> and 
the nice thing with us for musket balls is you can tell because of the caliber the difference between an allied musket ball and a french musket ball allied balls are slightly larger um, so you can then once we've uncovered them all we can then put all of these different ones on a map and see where the allied balls are where the french balls are and then compare them basically and as you would expect, most of the French balls are up against the wall and most of the allied balls are up against the, the hedge. But the interesting thing about this is that there's also a whole bunch of French musket balls within the garden as well, over the wall. Um, and as far as we know from the historical accounts, at least, there's no, there's no evidence of French incursion up that end of, of, the, of, the, um, of the farm complex. Um, so we were like, oh, okay, these balls in the garden have probably just, you know, flown over and um, have hit the ground or something. But a lot of them are actually impacted. Uh, so musket balls made of lead, when they hit something, they, they squash. So you can tell if they've hit something and they've been going at enough power to, to actually um, uh, impact. And a lot of the balls within the garden, the French balls within the garden were, were, were impacted, which suddenly starts suggesting that maybe they did get over the wall and maybe there was a bit of hand hand to hand combat within the wall or at least they were on top of the wall and firing down that kind of thing there's also some pistol balls as well which show that there was hand to hand you know close quarter combat not just musket firing as well so so that's quite intriguing and um and we've been doing a bit of historical research around that as well just to see if there's more evidence of this possible French incursion in the in the corner of the garden. So sticking with Hugemon as well, um, talking about historical record versus archaeology, because as we know, Zach, Zach um, history is obviously just a sub-discipline of archaeology anyway. So you know, uh, wow, <laughs> we haven't you got time to get into that. <laughs> um, so one of the other famous things about Hugemon is, is there's, there's a few um, engravings uh, or paintings produced after the battle which show some, a mass grave being dug just outside the, the south gate of, of Hugemon. Um, <clears throat> and also cremations as well. So, that, so there's, a, there's a story that basically a grave was dug or a number of graves were dug and then there was a there was a very wet winter um, and the graves weren't dug deep enough so that basically the ground flooded and the bodies came back up again so that everyone had to come back and and burn the bodies afterwards so this is this is this is always a thing about Hugemon okay there's a mass grave outside the south gate now as part of the project we don't we're not really particularly interested in chasing mass graves because it's um you know, it's the it's a it's a controversial subject. Like, should we be doing that kind of thing anyway? Um, but the important thing is that it is it is important to know where they are if we can find them, so that they can be protected. Basically, whether they be commemorated or not, you know, that's that's kind of a discussion to have a bit later. But but it is important to identify if we can where they might be, so that they can at least be protected, and then you know, a management plan can come up. Uh, it can be developed to deal with them. Um, <clears throat> so the owners of Hugemon were, were hoping to expand their car park. Um, and so the area where the mass grave looks like it is from the drawings is un under the current car park. 
And if you know anything about archaeology, all the good stuff is always under the car park. Um, so something about a king, wasn't there? Found underneath the exactly, car park. Exactly, exactly. We didn't find any kings under there, but anyway. <laughs> um, so we decided, or we, you know, as part of their, as part of the local Hugamon um, organisation's plans to develop their car park, they asked us to come in and, and have a look, basically, and see if this mass grave was there. And we dug a lot of trenches in that area. We really ripped the car park up and there was no evidence of the mass grave at all. There was one, one finger bone, but of course it's unknown as to what, what period it was from or, or anything like that. Um, so that was quite interesting because that was a proper myth buster, that one. Um, it certainly wasn't in that place right there underneath that car park in front of the iconic three chestnut trees. Um, that's not to say there isn't one in the front of Hougamon. And this is an interesting one in terms of, you know, using historical records versus archaeology where the people who painted those paintings probably thought, okay, Hougamon's super iconic as a, as a building you know, let's, let's foreshorten the, the perspective or that kind of thing and put it right there. Whereas it was more likely to be within the woodland a little bit further, further to the south. Um, but we haven't had a chance to, to actually go in and have a look there properly yet. So that's something for the future. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say, Stuart, about the, the discrepancies in terms of where those mass graves are, because there's a lot of controversy, isn't there, about the the practice during the 19th century of going to these big battlefields and digging up those who'd been killed and then using their bones as fertilizer which was a phenomenon that was particularly um prevalent in the uk at the time do you think that's had a role to play on waterloo itself um yes it's difficult to say at this stage uh, i mean in terms of human human remains, you know, people people have found human remains there, you know, for for a long time. Um, and farmers farmers, having spoken to some of the farmers and everything, they often say, "Oh yeah, I remember, you know, the bones that so and so found in his field last year or whatever." Or you know, my granddad used to dig up bones from this particular place. Um, <clears throat> so there there are definitely there are definitely remains there. Now, in terms of the fertilizer thing, this is a fantastic story and we are doing some research in fact my my um, co-director tony pollard up at glasgow is doing a lot of work on that at the moment um i haven't quite had access to his results yet <laughs> but hopefully in the next in the next few months he'll come out with something because um yeah this is there's some there's some very interesting things about this idea with the fertilizers uh fertilizer and as we know it happened on all of the european battlefields um we even if a mass grave had been emptied there are still there would still be um archaeological evidence of that even if there aren't any bones left um and in fact we've just as part of a, a joint project with the University of Bournemouth we've just um, interviewed for a new PhD student to do some geophysics on the battlefield uh, so that's using you know um, well going back to time team again they obviously always call it geophys but essentially it's essentially it's using um, uh, equipment to measure electrical 
resistance of the soil and also the magnetic um, susceptibility of the soil as well, which basically can show you lots of different things, but they do include areas where soil has been disturbed in the past or areas of burning as well. Um, so we're, we're quite hopeful that we, we will be able to test some of these theories about um, places where mass graves have been reported in the accounts and we'll, we, we can run this geophysics over the top of them and see if we can find any evidence for it. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one and I, and I do, I, do um, I suspect that there probably is quite a lot of truth in that actually, the, the taking out of the bones and grinding them up for fertilizer. It's, sounds wholly gruesome to our modern ears but I think it's you know relatively common practice back then. And Ben a lot of what Stuart's talked about is quite kind of technical in some senses in the in the sense that you need to know what you're doing from an archaeological perspective to not to not disturb things in an inappropriate way because the the location within which items are found is, is quite significant isn't it? So what kind of training do you get before you guys go out there? Um, you get hands-on um, when you get there. When I went out in 2018, I was literally, I wouldn't say thrown in the deep end, I was given and put into a team and the knowledge and the experience you're shown and given and you, you they won't let you do anything if they don't think you're capable of doing it straight off. But also behind that, well, a lot of stuff Stu was saying is that's when the, the, my military training comes into focus. Because, you know, working in intelligence and stuff, you look at it from a military point of view and, you know, you've got to look at it as, as a, more of a tactical side, you know. And then, as like Tony said in the past, Tony Pillard said, he said, you know, it's great him going out there, you know, he knows all the knowledge. But having a soldier with him, talking about my own experience, you know, I was involved in one of the biggest tank battles since the Second World War in Iraq in 2003, um, so it's in Kosovo, done all kinds of strange stuff out there um, to Afghanistan. So, you know, you've got a whole bar and but tactics of battles never really changed much. You know, you're still gonna have your outflanks, right flanks, all kinds of stuff. And like the cold streamers at Hugo One, they were there to defend and they defended. And it was, to me, that's like being on a compound in Afghanistan. You know, that, you're doing the same job in a way, trying to keep the Taliban out. If they're trying to get in, you know, the Siege of Bastion was a classic example of that, the RAF regiment. You know, they had to literally stand the ground and fight them for that period of time. Um, but going back, I, especially geophys, you know, I'm not qualified or anything, but I like looking at photos and overlapping them and seeing the difference in the grounds, how they've changed over the years. And you can start to put together a picture and build it up like a 3D model. Do you find that sometimes the academics that are out there start to put together these kind of theoretical ideas and then you have to turn around as a soldier and say yeah but actually in in reality based um, on experience this is this is more likely to be the case no i'm going to be i'm going to be honest on that front no because last year at mont st john there's a few things that came to light and Stu, can't correct me if i'm wrong was the orchard at mont st john i mm. didn't know that the scots grays were holding that area and on the day of the battle to me, it's ridiculous why they were there, but history states they were there. And for somebody who was attached to the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards in 2003, I said, out in Iraq, to me, it was like the greatest day of my life being in that orchard, knowing that the Scots Grays were there because it's the same regiment. But also, you, you don't really put two and two together. 
you, everyone thinks the battlefield of Waterloo was a massive front, like the Western Front. It's not. It's actually quite a small battlefront itself. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of stuff they guys come up with who are the academic guys, and they ask you a question, and nine times out of ten, it you work together and say, no, okay, this could happen. Done it this way. Yep, that's what. That's how I would have done it as a tactical person. So history is history on that front. And what's your experience been of the programme overall? Have there been so many standout moments for you? All of it, if I'm honest. I went out there with a very open mind in 2018, not having an, an inkling what I was expecting. I've been away skiing with the armed forces. I know it sounds really bizarre to say in July you go skiing, but I've been doing some training in Germany because I ski for the armed forces. And I got there, I was, I was very tired, I, my brain was just on another planet with my PTSD and from the minute I got there I've not looked back since because it's just one fantastic project. And what's the team spirit like on the digs? Oh I love it. It's just, it's like being back in the military but at the same time you've got a mixture of civilian and military and everyone understands each other. What I like is the fact that if I'm having a bad day with my PTSD I can go off and find a corner and go to sleep and people will leave you alone. You know, they won't ask me silly questions. Like I get asked quite a lot or I have been asked quite a lot in the past. How many people have you shot? You know, and like really? Come on. You know, it, but that's a civilian's way of thinking. You know, my normal response is I won't tell you, but I can, why start now? You know, and they soon back off pretty quick, <laughs> but it, it's just a real nice, you've got a right, real nice mixture. Everyone understands each other. And, if I'm honest, you, if I could have a unit in the military, it would be also uncovered as one whole unit because they work so fantastically together. Well, that's that's quite an accolade, isn't it? Stuart, what's been the stand-up moment for you so far? I, I don't want to say all of it because Ben just said all of it. <laughs> but actually, I think the, the, the big thing is for us is... is um, you know, it's a two-week two excavation in the summer I mean, I, I work on a lot of it throughout the year, but <clears throat> there's, a, there's this two-week excavation for the summer, and it's really a time to just go away and do something very, very different from what we've been doing before. And for me to mix with people, you know, from all walks of life that I wouldn't necessarily mix with, you know, or wouldn't be able to or whatever, you know, like it's people from, from, from all, from everywhere, uh, including lots of different nationalities and everything. And... Um, and I think, as Ben says, once that all comes together, you know, there was a worry at the start that it was going to be a, a mixing pot that wasn't going to work properly. But actually, it really, it really does just just um, gel together really, really well. And it's been fantastic for me with the, um, as Ben was saying about the bringing the military knowledge to the to the um, to the archaeological knowledge. So, I, like, I'm a pure archaeologist. I'm not a historian. We have Tony Pollard on board to do the the history side of that um, <clears throat> and so normally I, I deal with prehistory where you don't have any any historical record at all so for me coming along here and having this vast wealth of historical knowledge as well as the archaeology but then this extremely practical you know soldiers knowledge or, or military knowledge as well pulling all of those together just just means that we have this amazing kind of fusion of everything which is which is 
just fantastic. And um, I think that's the standout moment. It's this, it's this fusion of all of these different, different, I guess you'd call it interdisciplinary or whatever, multidisciplinary things coming together and, um, and hopefully producing a really interesting result that, that you know, can change the way people see the battle, even if it's only a tiny bit of the battle. Um, Wellington still won, I guess. <laughs> the big news that I think it made headlines last year, didn't it, was the discovery of amputated limbs at the Allied Field Hospital, which was set up at Mont Saint-Jean Farm. What was the mood like within the team when that discovery was made? In, in, in some ways, it was quite exciting because you're, you're start, you know, especially from um, a veteran's point of view, because you're like, wow, OK, this is really starting to come to life now as a project for us in our eyes. Also, at the same time, when somebody who's been in war, <laughs> somebody's like, oh, I just found an arm. You're like, OK. You know, because it's part of everyday life for us in, in respect. You know, and I've been in situations where I, you know, I won't talk about to anyone and it's a bit of a sore point in relationships and stuff. But, you know, that in itself, I think that was a massive game changer for everyone because it really opened up everyone's eyes. And more so to the fact, I think reality really kicked in on that as well. You know, up until that point, everyone had been expecting to find things, you know, like musket balls and cannonballs and stuff. But since you start put missing limbs into the, or limbs into it, you know, it, it really, because you know, it makes it more personal. I suppose, in that way. You agree on that, Shane? Yeah, I think, I think that the, so it's personal, but also impersonal. And I think that was what I found relatively surprising about this. So, you know, obviously we've I've excavated skeletons before and, and um, you, know, you, you, get used, you get used to it. But the thing with the limbs here, we're, we're excavating around the area of the Allied Field Hospital. So, you know, it, it was expected we were going to find, find these things. Um, but we actually found them in a ditch which was dug along the side of the road which ran past the farm. So it wasn't in a special pit that was, you know, it wasn't like someone went out and said, okay, you know, bury, the, bury these limbs or, you know, legs and arms or whatever. Basically, somebody loaded them on the back of a cart, took the, rolled them out the back of the farm, just dump them in the in the nearby roadside ditch you know the drainage ditch and then probably didn't bother covering them over and eventually they got they got covered over and i think it's that aspect of it which made me really realize that well as ben was just saying you know these limbs they're effectively just rubbish at that point they've been locked off they're lopping off hundreds of limbs in that place and where do you put them all oh you just dump them out the back and not worry about it you know it's um so that impersonal nature of it mixed with the personal nature of we have guys on the project who who have amputated limbs you know who've lost limbs in war so so mixing those two together was was quite heady really quite interesting um yeah and then and obviously the, the bones themselves you can see you can see the cut marks and everything you know they're quite clearly amputated and everything so from an osteological point of view that's that's interesting stuff as well from a technical side too in terms of the osteoarchaeology of it, the, the common perception is, you know, if, if you break a limb during this period, your only real option is to amputate. Was that kind of borne out by what you found archaeologically or was it or did it seem like there were other reasons why these limbs might have been amputated, such as wounds to the, the tissue itself? It's difficult to tell. I mean, we found 
currently the the bones are, are are still in Belgium and they're being looked at by the by the national Belgian osteolo osteologists, basically the archaeological or forensic forensic archaeologists from Belgium. So we haven't had the final report yet on 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 all of the um, on all of the technicalities of that. But no, I mean, we, you know, a couple of them had musket balls embedded in the knee kind of thing. So, and then they were cut off just above that, basically. So it's, it's difficult to tell because obviously you only have the bones and not, and not the tissue itself. But I would, most of them were broken underneath, you know, underneath where the cut was. So one presumes they were cut, locked off because, because of the, of the um, damage, basically. Ben? How's your involvement in the programme changed how you think about Waterloo, or, or hasn't it changed it actually? God. Um, <clears throat> my involvement in the programme now is, is I've gone from being a participant to being on the staff, but my overall view of the battle now is a lot different because when I was growing up, Battle of Waterloo to me was just Wellington and Napoleon, British and the French. You'd not really talk about the Prussians, the Dutch, and everything else but you know when I first time I went to Waterloo and saw the line mound I thought it was there because the bushes put it there because it was a line you know straight away you think Trafalgar yeah, Square yeah. no actually no it wasn't put there it was put there by the, the Hutch and you're like oh that's just killed my you know a bit of my knowledge so you in a way it was not putting it out there to me now I look at it was like the 1815 NATO war against the French modern day kind of thing if that makes sense yeah. you know, you've got all the yeah. nations are coming together to fight off Napoleon absolutely and that's something that we've been talking about um, with a lot of people who, who've come on about how this is really a, a, a pan-European battle you know it, there is, it is an allied coalition that fights Napoleon and that point is is generally lost in how in how people remember the conflict oh, massively um, when I was in Bosnia in Kosovo in 2006 if I was in Bosnia, I was under EU for, you know, the European force, which no one knows about. And which is kind of like the same sort of thing for 1815. You know, I've working alongside the, um, the French Foreign Legion, the Spanish army, the Italians, all kinds of European nations. But when, then, when I went into Kosovo, I was working under K4, which was a totally different way of warfare. Same continent, but wars engagement were totally different. And out there, I was, this time around, I was working with the Americans more so, not so much the French or the Italians. But what I like about the whole idea of um, also uncovered is when I'm out there in Belgium, I can sit there in the evening and speak to the Dutch about it. And they told me stuff. It's not even been recorded. And you're like, oh, wow, okay. So it really does make a big eye-opener. There's been a lot of interest on social media about kind of the myth-busting of the battle. And that's one of the things that this whole kind of sequence of interviews is trying to sort of deal with and, and Ben you've already kind of touched on this but what do you think is the biggest flaw or the most unhelpful myth that we have about the battle? Yeah as I said earlier my um, <laughs> look on it is um, one the myth is everyone just thinks it's Napoleon and Wellington when in fact there's a whole coalition going on um, if I had a pound for every time actually somebody asked me with Richard Sharp was that Battle of Waterloo. It kind of it grinds with me a little bit, even though it's fictional and some of it, you know. But it's like, oh my god, really? <laughs> but yeah, no. 
it's like anything. It's like any war you go situation you go into. There's always going to be myths. You know, I could, I could speak for hours about different battles on this because I've worked in film and TV, and it's about getting the facts right and people to understand them. But what people take away from that is where your myths come from. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the, I think surely the biggest myth is that it was just the British versus the French. I mean. The, the big thing with, with the archaeology is that we, because we're only digging small holes, it's sort of mini myth busting basically is what we do. So we, so we only have a small window in which, to, in which to examine a very small part of the battle. And I find that fascinating because, it, because it's extremely personal as well. So, you know, we don't necessarily deal with the massive wide question of huge regiments moving from side to side of the battle or this kind of thing. We're dealing with these very, very personal you know, one-on-one -on -one battles sometimes, you know, and um, <clears throat> and I think that personal aspect of it is really, really important. And I think it's very easy, especially um, when dealing with kind of grand narrative or big history, to forget that, that these are, you know, people like us called up to go and, to go and fight with people that, you, you know, you don't know who they are or whatever. And basically, you just have to run at this wall that you didn't even know was there behind the forest, and you've got to try and jump over this wall and get into this farm that you weren't, you don't even know why you're doing it. And uh, um, and I think that's really, really, really important to remember that this is a massive series of personal stories of of individuals and human beings, not just two great generals who came together, and then a third general maybe turned up if if you you know talk to the right person or whatever. Or, or you're not trying to suppress the Prussian involvement for some kind of political expediency. Um, so yeah, I think that's I think that's that's a really important thing to remember. And obviously that comes out really well with working with the veterans and everything at, at Waterloo is these personal stories and um, archaeology is a fantastic way of getting to those. Uh, you were you've been very candid. Um, in interviews for Waterloo Uncovered about your own experiences with PTSD. I wondered if you could say for the benefit of people who might be in a, a similar situation and struggling to work out how they can take those first steps towards um, trying to receive the help they need. Can you yeah. offer a I'll few words honest. of advice? Yeah, I'll be frank and I'll be honest on this one. Um, the only way you're going to get help is actually asking for it. Um, I was in a very, very dark place exactly five years ago. And if I hadn't put my hand up when needed, well, in fact, I didn't even put my hand up if I was honest. Um, it's because I did something that was so awful. I tried to take my own life, basically. And I was found in minutes of um, that happening. I then... It was, Big rude awakening. It was like, right, actually, well, this is serious. You know, people around you won't want to talk to you about it because they're scared to approach the subject. But if you're noticing every day activities around you are changing and you're becoming very aggressive person, you're becoming very isolated, you know something's not right somewhere. And as I say, it's as simple picking a phone up and phoning into someone. It's no good waiting for something to do it because chances are it will probably never happen, or the charity or whoever you re they reach out to will tell them it's got to be down to the person who's suffering. It's as simple as that. 
you know it is if you could i don't know drive a car and do stuff it's no difference picking the phone up to making a phone yeah it goes against every soldier's um identity it's a shame it's not actually a shame it takes courage it takes more courage to admit to it and be open about it and don't get me wrong i lost a lot of friends because a lot a lot of my friends were like whoa this is a bit heavy and they walked away from me but i soon worked out who my friends were and the ones that and it was the ones that i least expected as well who stood by me so you know as soon as you start coming out and saying yep you know i'm not well i'm, I'm you know i'm ill it's a hidden injury you can't see it and i say to people don't judge a book by its color you know pick a phone Sorry. up phone someone simple as that and for those who are concerned that their their loved ones whether it's friends family work colleagues are struggling with ptsd or are struggling in some other way with their mental health what advice would you would you give to them in terms of trying trying to help in some way listen to the people around you again it's a bit more um a role um role play thing going on really because i'm lucky now i'm in a relationship i'm lucky in the fact that one she's a senior staff nurse and she kind of understands me as a person but also she's gone out her way to learn about ptsd learn about in fact she's even gone out of her way to learn about the battle of waterloo so we can have conversations in the evening which is to my audience is quite frustrating because <laughs> I'm trying, I'm right, you're wrong kind of thing. But no, it doesn't really happen in that front. Um, but it's, it's, it's listening to people around you. The people that will tell you suffering the most is your closest friends. Family members won't because they're scared of the repercussions. Um, for me, I couldn't reach out to my family, even though I've got a very close family. I, didn't feel ashamed. I didn't know how to approach the subject. Um, but approaching out to friends or somebody coming up to me and saying, Look, well, you need to get this sorted, saying it's not right. And yeah, I was lucky. I was in a job at the time where the company was very, very understanding and very supporting. Um, where a lot of companies aren't like that. Um, but just listen, look at your life, how it's changing. As I said, there's no difference picking a phone up. Um, I suppose if you're a soldier and you're suffering, the best person to hear it from is one of your fellow soldiers because they were the ones who identified it straight away. And in a strange way, somebody who's got PTSD, <laughs> I know from being in the crowd, and this is bizarre, and a lot of people will say this, they've got PTSD, you can sniff it out just by talking to someone. You know, you know oh, that man's over there, man, as a box of frogs, it makes me look sane, you know. So, you kind of, it's like a, um, it's the same when we go to Belgium, people sit there and they, they try not to talk about it, and you're like that. I don't know what you're hiding it for because it's written all over your face, you know, it's there, so don't be afraid. But society, from when we were growing up to the last hundred years, is a totally different outlook on mental health, what it is today. And it's trying to break that stigma. And can I just say thank you for sharing your your thoughts and your experiences with that you're welcome um and i i will at the end um say a few words about organizations that can help um 
if if people are struggling and they they want to take that step to reach out to somebody one final question from me both of you the focus of the waterly remembered program is of course about remembrance and encouraging people to reflect on the battle its significance and the human sacrifice what does waterly mean to both of you it means a lot to me uh, to me in a personal note um having come home and it's given me my identity back in a way that now I do a job where I work doing research for history in museums um, from which I then in my own time I've gone away and researched my own family military history found out all kinds of things like to um, winners of the military medal in the family to actually finding out I had a relative who fought at the Battle of Waterloo which no one knew so for me it's, it's on a personal note it's great but at the same time, it, it just opens your eyes up to everything. I think. Um, I think for me, it's. <clears throat> I mean, it, it's a. It's a. It's sort of leading on from what Ben was saying earlier. Actually, you know about this sacrifice and about and about the the kind of human cost of the thing. And so, previously to being involved with Waterloo Uncovered, I, I haven't worked on any battlefields or anything, and that's not. You know, that's just not something that I've been particularly um, interested in or even you know involved in or interested in but coming on the Waterloo Uncovered projects and then working with with the with the soldiers and the veterans and um, the armed personnel there it's um it's really surprised me how badly <laughs> people get treated by the army when they leave or by the armed forces when they leave. I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but no, I agree honest, with you. a lot of, a lot of the people who've come have essentially been abandoned once they've, once they've either come to the end of their useful, their use, usefulness for the army because they're injured or whatever, or they've, you know, left for other reasons and are suddenly just sort of set loose. And I found that, amazing and very very surprising that there isn't more support within the armed forces for for people who are who are injured or who are suffering from you know mental health there there is support and it's coming around but you know it's not a lot of this stuff is done by charities basically and that doesn't seem to be the right way i mean we do waterloo uncovered and the other charities do get support from the government you know in terms of in terms of um financial and also logistical support and everything so I don't want to I don't want to kind of be too off about that but but I've been super surprised about that and I think that that was very much the same after Waterloo as well I mean obviously these soldiers went out there and and um, you know they gave everything and then um, and then basically you're just left to to carry on with your life with very little support from from anyone and I think that you would have hoped that would have changed over the last 200 years, but I don't, don't think it has. I mean, maybe it's changing now and that's extremely positive. And I think a lot of the charities now are, are you know, facilitating that change, but um, that's really what has touched me most about the whole thing is, is, you know, the sacrifice is there, but it's not actually rewarded in the ways that it should be rewarded for the people who are really suffering from it. Yeah, I agree. Because it boils down to the old um, situation, they were saying, when you join the military, you're not a person, you're a number. You know, you've done your, once you've done your dues, we've been injured like I was, and you're showing the door, somebody just walks, somebody else walks through another door and takes over. And 
I've, I've spent time each, well, every year, I spend a couple of months each year working over in Canada, teaching scheme to um, former soldiers from Australia, America, Canada, England. And it just fascinates me, the whole different welfare systems across the board, where we're still lacking behind by about 100 years, if not more, than many avenues. But as Drew said, you know, it's slowly but surely starting to come around. Because people, I think it's... It, it's caught people off, off guard the last 20 years, more so. And it, it, it's, it's there, it's, it's in our faces. So, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. And I think it will be for a long time to come. Until, I don't know, the answer to it, really. So... But I think I think we're getting there, aren't we, Ben? I mean, these yeah. initiatives like Waterloo and, and you know, obviously Help the Heroes and all the others, and, and and the support that is coming from the government now. I mean, the the attitudes are definitely changing, and because Sorry. it has been it's been recognised now as a as a you know societal societal issue, and uh, I don't know, it's, we'll get there, right? <laughs> totally. You know, don't get me wrong. Um, a lot of the charities offer sports, and I've told Mark this and Charlie this over time, and. And, you know, uh, well, you can, anyone can do a sport, but what's you uncovered to me balances the brain out because it's academic based. So you're getting a happy mix between the two. So your brain's actually, you're not just doing sport all the time, but with this, yeah, it's still physical, but it's very academic. And to me, I know it sounds stupid, but that's 50-50. So as far as I'm concerned, my brain is happy doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm not on overload all the time. And, and I'd say to anyone who's never thought about doing it or wants to do it just apply it's as simple as that at the end of the day if you don't know how are you going to know yeah absolutely and yeah it, i mean it is really important to say if people have got money to spare and they're thinking about donating please do consider donating to armed forces charities Waterloo uncovered <laughs> organizations that that do such great work to to help veterans who as you say are, are kind of being left behind and I'm, I can't believe that that sits well with anybody who reflects on, on the sacrifices that, that service personnel have made for us. Ben, Stuart, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me for Water Remembered. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. That was the archaeologist Stuart Eve and the British Army veteran Ben Mead, both of whom are members of the charity Waterloo Uncovered. You can find out more about Waterloo Uncovered on Twitter at DigWaterloo and on the website www.waterlooUncovered.com where you can also find details on how you can donate. If you or someone you know is suffering with PTSD or other mental health disorders, you do not need to suffer in silence. If you are having suicidal thoughts or if you think someone is in danger of taking their own life, call the emergency services immediately. In the UK, they can be reached on 999, and in the United States, on 911. You can also call 111 in the UK to contact non-emergency NHS medical advice services, and if you have concerns about your own mental health, you can request an emergency appointment with your GP by telephoning your doctor's surgery. All you need to do is say that you have urgent concerns about your mental health and ask for an emergency appointment. You should not need to give more information than that to have your request processed and you should be able to see someone the same day. 
If you would like to access more anonymous support, Samaritans can be called in the UK on 116123. That's 116123. Calls are free and lines are open 24 hours a day. You can also visit www.samaritans.org. You can also text SHOUT to 85258 for free. That's SHOUT to 85258. It shouldn't cost anything. Or alternatively, you can visit www.giveusashout.org. That's all one word. www.giveusashout.org, which will supply you with more information. Taking that first step to talk to someone is often the hardest, and no one should think any less of you for having the courage to speak out. Waterloo Remembered will continue tomorrow when I'll be speaking to the author of the Peninsula War saga, Lynn Bryant, about turning fact into fiction when writing about the period. Remember to post your comments and questions about this and other interviews in the series online on Twitter using the hashtag Waterloo Remembered and in the forum. Until tomorrow, stay safe, stay kind, and as always, thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.